Thank you, Eliza, for that lovely poem. Very, very touching. I hope all of us, um, regardless of your relationship with your mom, would take time today to reach out, call her. If you're going to see her, give her a hug and let her know how much she is loved. Today's text is the same as last week's. I want us to continue looking at Nehemiah chapter 1. And last week, we looked at the first four verses and how Nehemiah um, followed the pattern that God often uses when God does something, is that we become aware of something, we are moved by that thing that we become aware of, and we put ourselves into action. And that's kind of what we saw in the first four verses. Today, we're going to look at um, Nehemiah's prayer uh, and see um, what God has for us. So... I'm going to go ahead and read that. It's Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we come to you because you call us to come and listen, to be fed, to open wide our mouths that we may receive blessings from you. And Lord, we ask now that you will speak to us through your word, that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive the planting of your word and that it may bear fruit in our lives. Help us especially as we look at Nehemiah's prayer to see your sovereignty, to see your plan at work, not just in Israel's history, but in our lives and in this church's life. So help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
David Foster Wallace is an author that I enjoy and like. And in a well-known commencement speech that he gave at Kenyon College in 2005, he tells this story, and I'm going to read you the story as he tells it. There are, two, there are these two guys sitting together in a bar in the remote Alaskan wilderness. One of the guys is religious. The other is an atheist. And the two are arguing about the existence of God with that special intensity that comes after the fourth beer. And the atheist says, look, it's not like I don't have actual reasons for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't ever experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. Just last month, I got caught away from camp in that terrible blizzard and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see a thing, and it was 50 below, and so I tried it. I fell to my knees in the snow and cried out, Oh God, if there is a God, I am lost in this blizzard, and I'm going to die if you don't help me. And now in the bar, and now in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist all puzzled, well, then you must believe now, he says. After all, here you are, alive. The atheist just rolls his eyes. No, man, all that was just a couple of Eskimos happening to come wandering by and show me the way back to camp. All right. I just let that sink for a moment, right? And the point of that parable or story, according to Wallace himself, was that he wanted to demonstrate that even atheists could be dogmatic about their beliefs, even if it was not about faith or God. What I particularly love about that story is that all of us do interpretive work, that when something happens to us, we all, rather we believe in God or are agnostic or don't believe in God, we all have to interpret what is happening and have it make sense to us. We live by stories. Our identities and what is happening in our life or what we should do are all shaped by the stories we tell ourselves. And rather you do it explicitly or subconsciously, you are telling yourself a story all the time. Perhaps... When, if you're going through a, a challenging time, maybe you're facing an illness, or perhaps you're in transition and, and, and you're moving to a different city, or you're in transition between jobs, or you're, you're in transition in relationships, whatever happens, maybe a friend has hurt you or betrayed you, you tell yourself a story to make that incident make sense. We all do interpretive work. The atheist in the story, obviously, is doing his interpretive work. And whereas the religious person will see the Eskimos as an answer to prayer, the atheist sees it as just a coincidence. How we interpret what happens in our life, the stories that we tell ourselves to make sense of the world, reveals what we believe and what we value. It reveals what we believe and value 
as well as it shapes how we go about making decisions about how we live our lives. It does both. It reveals what we believe and value, and it also shapes the decisions that we make based on those beliefs and values. Now, Nehemiah, in today's text, is in one of these moments. He faces a crisis. He hears from Hananiah, he inquires and he hears from Hananiah that the people of God, God's very own people, are in trouble and in shame because the walls are broken and the gates are destroyed by fire. As Nehemiah hears this, it hits him in the guts. He begins to weep, he begins to mourn, and he begins to pray and fast. Okay? But in addition, Nehemiah has now, though it's not in the text, he has to now make sense of the story. He has to make sense of what is happening to the remnant, to the people of Israel, to his people, to God's people. Why is this happening? And there are, they are, in Nehemiah's days and times, various interpretations or various stories that possibly could explain what is happening. Perhaps if he spoke with his Babylonian or Persian friend at the time, they might say something along the lines of, well, maybe your God isn't just that strong. Maybe the Persian God or the Babylonian gods are stronger. Maybe your God isn't able to deliver your people, and he just got whooped. Now, this is common in those days to believe that gods were really local deities. So when armies of nations fought each other on the battleground, it was really a reflection of the gods battling each other, perhaps in the heavens. And in the armies that won on the battleground, could be said that their God had triumphed. In fact, if you look at um, the Bible, in King Hezekiah's days, a couple of hundred years before Nehemiah, Assyria was a powerful nation, and Assyria was sweeping through its region, conquering people, conquering nations. And Assyria arrives at the doorsteps of Jerusalem, and the commander of the Assyrian army yells out, and tells the people of Israel, in part, quote, this is from 2 Kings, do not listen to Hezekiah, the, the king of the Jews, the Israelites. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he's misleading you when he says, the Lord, that is Israel's God, will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? These are countries that they've conquered. Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? In other words, if all these other countries, their gods couldn't deliver their people and we conquer them, how can your God, Yahweh, deliver you? Just surrender. 
Well, that was definitely a possibility, an interpretation that Nehemiah faced. Another possible interpretation is that God had abandoned his people. God has forsaken his covenant. God had forsaken his promise to Abraham, their forefathers. And God has abandoned his people. I love reading the Psalms because Psalms are so full of human emotion. And in Psalm 44, you get a glimpse of Israelites when they were in turmoil, when they were being overrun by enemies. And the psalmist, the sons of Korah, the psalmist cries out in Psalm 44. But now he talks about how God used to go out with the armies of Israel. And now he says in Psalm 44, it says, But now you have rejected it, in verse 9, you have rejected it and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. This is a darker interpretation. It's not that God wasn't able to deliver Israel. He chose not to deliver Israel from her enemies. That was a possibility. Maybe we are in exile because, not because God couldn't defend us, but because he chose not to deliver us. When I was in high school, I had a friend, and her mother was given the terrible news that she had cancer. Her father the father whose beloved wife now had cancer was devastated. He was broken. I remember he was an elder at our church. And he fasted. He became half of what he was because he was fasting so much. He was praying to God, holding on to God. Please heal my wife. I know you can heal her. He sought out other people, other Christians. He sought out people who supposedly had the gift of healing, and said, pray for my wife. And he believed. He says, I know she'll get better. I remember days, my, uh, the friend in high school would tell me, like, he was spending on the hospital floor just praying and seeking God. But within less than a couple of years, she passed away. He had to make sense of that story. And for the first several years, he was angry at God. He felt abandoned by God. God, you were able to heal and you chose not to heal was interpretation, was a story that he adopted and he left the church. The happy, there is a happy ending in the sense that he did eventually come back years later and realized that God hadn't abandoned him he learned to reinterpret that event through grace and through God's sovereignty in a way that he couldn't in the beginning. Nehemiah had to interpret or tell himself a story of why the people of God were in distress and in trouble, why the walls are still torn down and why the gates are still breached. He could have bought into these other narratives, but he doesn't. 
what we find in the prayer of Nehemiah is how Nehemiah defines his reality and ultimately his own sense of calling through God's story, through who God is and what he has done and what he will do. And by allowing himself to be defined by God's reality, Nehemiah is able to do great things for the people of God. He is strengthened in his convictions. He is able to risk his life to go before the king and to make a big ask. So how does Nehemiah align what is happening? How does he align his own interpretation, his own story with what God is doing? There are two things that I really, really hope you hear today because my desire for you is that as you live your life and living by faith, really, in some ways, can be simply defined as letting God's story define our reality. Faith really becomes the lens by which we can see what is happening and buy into God's narrative for the world and for us and be part of that story. That is my hope for you. And we want to see how Nehemiah does it in his context and hopefully take those lessons and apply it to ourselves. Because, dear friends, some of you are going through hard times. Some of you are going through good times. Some of you will go through challenging times. Life is hard. And in those moments of difficulty, even in those moments of success, you're going to be telling your story why this is happening. As a community, we're going to be telling a story about our ministry. Where are the people that used to come? Where are the people that God wants us to reach out to in the future? We're going to be telling ourselves a story to help make sense of what is happening. And I hope through Nehemiah's prayer today that you will be able to glean some lessons and principles so that we can align ourselves with God's story. The first thing that Nehemiah does is he leans into who God is, his nature, his character, and his power. Listen, remember the two main narratives that Nehemiah perhaps is resisting. The first is that God is not powerful and that the other gods must have been more powerful because they conquered Israel, or perhaps that God doesn't care and he has abandoned them. It is important to see right away when Nehemiah, pray, Nehemiah prays, his very first thing he does is he addresses both of these by who God is. The person he is praying to, look at what he says in the very opening words of his prayer. He says, O Lord God of heaven. And can we put that verse up again? O Lord God of heaven. And let me just make a, just a quick aside. Some of you may already know this from reading your Bibles. Um, but when you read the Old Testament, there are, there are various ways that the word Lord is um, typed out. And if you look at, O Lord God of heaven, that's right in the middle of that thing. It's actually, if you look at most modern translations, it'll be all capitalized. It'll be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And it's different from when it's capital L and lowercase O-R-D. 
Okay? When you see in the Old Testament, in most modern translations, all capital letters, that usually means that referring to the four consonants that constituted the name of God, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, right? Now, the Israelites, out of the respect for the holiness of the name of God, never said that, and they would substitute whenever they read the scriptures and they read across those four letters, they would say, Adonai, Lord, and substitute of that letter. But I want you to know, when Nehemiah prays, he says, O Yahweh, God of heaven, O Lord, God of heaven. So he's directly saying, this is the God of Abraham. This is the God who revealed himself to Moses, saying, I am that I am, right? This is the great I am. And, and listen to what Nehemiah says, says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Number one, God, you're God of heaven. You are not a local deity. You're not a powerless God. You are a God who is the God above all gods. You are the God of heaven. And then he says, you are the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. You have not abandoned your people. You have not broken faith with your chosen ones. Right off the bat, Nehemiah gets into God's story by understanding who God is, his character. He is powerful, and he is a covenant-keeping God. When you are faced with, with times in your life when you have to make sense of something, there is no greater foundation to help you understand what is happening than to know the nature of God. For example, to know that God is for you and not against you. When things go hard, it's so easy to buy into the narrative and the story and the lies that God somehow is not on your side or that God has abandoned you. No, God in Christ Jesus is always our Emmanuel, God with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or perhaps when you are tempted to take shortcuts in life, when you are tempted to shortcut or shortchange someone to benefit yourself, and you try to make sense of that. Perhaps you're trying to tell a story to justify yourself. Know that God is a God of justice. Know that God loves a just scale. That God is for the marginalized. That God cares for those on the fringes. Knowing who God is is the surest foundation to help us understand our own life's experiences. God does not tempt us with evil. God does not lie. He does not love violence. He, does, he abhors evil. He abhors injustice. He loves the truth, right? Knowing who God is, God is holy. Knowing all of these things about God, that he is powerful, that he cares for you. Knowing the nature and character of God helps us in our moment of distress, in our moment of perhaps success, when we need to tell our story of what is happening, knowing God helps us align our stories with God. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. He says, God, you're powerful, and you're a covenant-keeping God. So all these other stories, he undercuts the basis of it right away when he prays to God. And the second thing that Nehemiah does is notice how many times he mentions Moses. Nehemiah is steeped in, in the Torah. He understands that in Deuteronomy, God has said that if my people forsake my ways and they sin and they worship idols and they don't keep my commandments, then I'm going to scatter them. But if my people repent 
I will gather them from the farthest, remotest areas, and I will reconstitute them as my people and restore them and redeem them. He knows these stories. He's read Deuteronomy. He knows this is God's sovereign plan. So when he sees the Israelites in exile, he knows that this is not outside of God's sovereignty. This is not taking God by surprise, but this is actually part of God's design for the people of Israel so that they would know to fear and to love and to trust in God. And because he knows this is part of God's plan, not just to scatter the people of Israel, but to bring them back, he is able to be bold about how he sees himself being a part of that restoration. In the next chapter, we're going to see him asking the king to be able to go back and help rebuild the wall. Where does he get that confidence? He gets that confidence because he knows it is God's plan to restore his people when they repent. And he does. He repents. He repents his own sins. He's not a passive agent in God's working, working out God's plans. God doesn't, Nehemiah doesn't say, well, God's going to rebuild his people. So, great. I'll just continue to just go about my life. It's as if God calls us to be witnesses of his resurrection and preach the good news and bring people to the, to the delights and the joys of, the, uh, of knowing Jesus Christ. we like, oh, God's going to do that. We'll just watch these great things happen. No, he calls us to be part of it. Nehemiah is part of the story. It's God's story, but he's a part of it. He's not passive. He's active. He knows that his sins and the sins of his forefathers are reasons why God scattered the people of Israel. And he repents of it. He actively repents. But he also knows that God's going to restore them. And he actively pursues the restoration by risking his life to go back and help the remnant rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Knowing God's story, knowing that God is the one who is sovereign, doesn't mean that we have everything figured out. It doesn't mean that we know exactly what to do. Nehemiah, remember after this prayer, waits four months for an opportunity. And even when that opportunity comes, the text tells us he was afraid. He didn't know exactly how things were going to play out, but he knew what direction he was called to. Knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that God has a story for you and for this church doesn't mean that we have every step figured out. But it means that we can trust that he is leading us. What breaks my heart is when I see people, even believers, telling stories that do not align with the reality of who God is or his plans. I see so, and so many times in my own life, my stories were stories that I told myself to make myself feel better or because I was at the center, as if I was the main character. And when those things happen, it may be okay for a while, in your life, 
But at the end of the day, those stories that are not rooted in God's story, they don't have enough heft in them to carry you through difficult times. They don't have enough heft to motivate you to pursue great things and risk and step out in faith. It is when we buy into God's story for you individually, right? It's not, it's not just about your own visions and your own narratives. It's when we align ourselves with God's story. It is at those moments that we have vision, that we have passion, that we have faith to step out beyond our own abilities, that we can walk out and, and risk for something that seems out of our reach in faith. And same with this ministry, THMCEM. What is the story that we are telling ourselves about this ministry? What is God doing here right now? Maybe we tell our stories to justify maybe a, a dry season we are going through as a church. Maybe we tell stories to explain why things aren't the way they used to be or we hope to be. But I know this, God is working here. The Spirit is here. He wants to bless people and the community through us, through the preaching of the gospel, through the living out of the gospel. If you align yourself with that story, then I'm willing to step out in faith. I'm willing to commit myself. I'm willing to be a Nehemiah and take a risk and ask for a big ask and I'm willing to put my mind to work if that's a story that I believe. I hope whether you're going through a difficult time or, or a blessed, peaceful season in your life, that you will learn to attune your life to God's story as Nehemiah does. Let's pray. Father, all of us, rather we are aware or not, are continually interpreting things that are happening and telling ourselves stories. Well, Lord, what you want us to hear now is your story, how you love this world, and that you created it in goodness, and that through our rebellion, we suffer the consequences of sin and brokenness and in pain. But Lord, in Christ Jesus, you call us now to be redeemed. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you give us hope. And you want us to share that hope with the broken world. This is the story of our lives and this church. May we have the faith to align ourselves with it and to be active part of this story. In Christ's name we pray, amen.